Here we go. Yeah! The Earthbox Podcast. Welcome to the Earthbox Podcast. That is a made-up name. It's my gamer tag. Yeah, he's a great man, by the way. Yeah, baby, yeah! Here we go. Like it! Come on, like it! Subscribe to it, please! Earthbox! Welcome back to the show. And uh, we're going to make it official. Welcoming for the third time, but the first time. I think we're going to call this episode one, as a matter of fact. It's my new official co-host. 404. Missing Link. Welcome back, man. Hey, how's it going? Yeah, I'm, I'm very honored to be uh, the official co-host. I think uh, we get on super, super well, um, and the flow is just so good, so I'm, I'm really keen. I'm really happy to make this uh, an official thing. I am too. I'm really excited about what we each bring to the show and our backgrounds, which... I don't really know anything about. I don't even know your first name, but I really love that you lean into the anonymous thing because, I mean, of of course, I remain anonymous because I don't want the FBI at my door. I don't want my bank accounts closed, etc. Is this sort of the same thing for you? Uh, I don't know. It's more of a branding thing for me, uh, really. Like a stage name. Yeah, pretty much. If people want to find out who I am, they, they, they can, if they really want to dig in it, you know, it's the internet. So it's, uh, it's, it's not as, um, it's not as hard as it used to be. Well, I noticed you have your, you have your picture up on your website. And of course, I mean, there's nothing really nefarious about being a musician. I mean, some, some could disagree. But when yeah. you're, you know, creating a podcast and you call in to question the approved narratives, a lot of, I mean, you can see it every day, people getting canceled and deplatformed for wrong think. We, we live yeah, in very absolutely. Orwellian times. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I, I keep some level of anonymity, like uh, I keep. You know, most of the time, my family life and my sort of personal life very separated from stuff I put online. Like, I'm not a very socially active person online, and so there's not really that much that people can learn. Yeah, I'm not you know, either. About, about I, me personally, so I quit Facebook, and uh, it, it's bizarre and kind of creepy. There's still a profile on Facebook uh, for me that I haven't. You know, because I fully deleted my profile and then I, I went back and when I launched the podcast a few years ago, <clears throat> I, you know, created a new a new profile under my sort of alternate podcasting name. And I just I never really went back to it because it's not exciting for me anymore. And I, I'm more disgusted by the activities of the big tech creature that's kind of creating a simulation for all of us, you know, our, our own little bubbles, you know, where we only see what we want to see slash what we're meant to see. 
Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Like the echo chamber thing yeah. that happens on social media. So I thought it would be a good idea uh, since no one knows you, myself included, and I'm always up for any opportunity to hone my interviewing skills that we dig into some uh, personal details. And, you know, I'm, I would happily answer any of the questions that I would ask you. And I welcome you to ask me anything that you'd like and we'll uh, get into, you know, and that's partly one of the reasons why I said that we'll, we'll call this episode one because people like, I mean, strangely, when I find out about a new podcast, I don't really go back to the very first episode that they did. I might go back a few episodes just to load my yeah, day up with, with some of their content. Um, but I know a lot of people do that. I can see, I can watch my numbers and, and pretty easily identify when I reach new people because the numbers of my very first podcasts start creeping up and then i go oh those poor people <laughs> <laughs> you know i feel exactly the same thing because yeah you're totally right you release a new episode and that you know gets someone interested and then you see like one download or something on like a brand new download on every single episode going down for like a week or something so you just know that poor person is yeah. seeing the quality degrade over time as they yeah. go down each episode right yeah and i'm i'm my own worst critic i always you know sometimes and I have to think really hard. Like after I listen back, I'll release an episode and I'll listen back and I'll go, Oh, maybe I should delete that one <laughs> or, or go through and heavily edit it and, you know, cut out the parts where I completely lost my train of thought, but tried to cover it up, which is still happening to this day. But the point being, of course, that with each new episode, you get a little bit better in, in theory. Yeah, absolutely. Like I'm, I'm just about to put out, uh, well, I literally just put out episode three of season two, uh, this morning. Oh, I saw I it. I think it's the best episode. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's the best episode I've ever put out. Nice. Um, hands down. Oh, I'm excited to listen to it. I got, uh, I'm into your, the lo-fi episode that you just released. I mean, the one, yeah. the one before your latest. And, uh, that's, that's the one like having no experience. I mean, before I found your podcast and started listening to it, I couldn't have pointed out house. I mean, you could play me five different samples back to back and I couldn't tell you which one was house. Um, but when I started listening to your lo-fi stuff, that seems to have, I mean, maybe I'm wrong. My impression so far is that it seems to have a lot of uh, melody compared to maybe some of the other stuff. Yeah, for sure. So, you know, lo-fi has its uh, backgrounds in, in hip hop. So it's got a bit more of that uh, melodic and uh, funky aspect to that kind of music. Whereas the kind of minimal that I'm playing is, is more like inspired by uh, Jamaican dub music where you strip back vocals and you strip back a lot of the outside elements of typical house music to create more of a beat defined uh, house music. So I feel like I'm on my own podcast now. <laughs> I'm delving right into it. <laughs> well, that's no, that's good. I mean, you are technically right. It's, it's, a, it's <laughs> yeah. official now. 
<laughs> oh, for sure. Yeah, I can talk about whatever I want. <laughs> and we should because you're a musician. I mean, I'm a musician. When uh, when did you start getting into music? So I first got into music at a very, very young age. I really liked um, a lot of sort of typical commercial rock music, you know, the, the typical stuff that everyone listens to when they get into a bit of rock and metal, uh, like ACDC and stuff like that. And I just really like that um, harder stuff. And then in 2012, this genre came out called dubstep. And I thought it was the coolest thing ever. Oh, yeah. Skrillex was really big. And that was like a really interesting transition because um, Korg and Skrillex put this tune out that was like dubstep and metal together. So I was like, oh, this is really cool. And it was kind of a transitional thing for me to get into that. And then dubstep was a thing. Really loving that genre with glitch hop as well. And then I moved into drum and bass and drum and bass is really cool because it had a similar sound to it but a little bit faster and then that sort of died down and i started to get more refined into into typical house music specifically uh, deep house music when i was about 13 or 14 and i was picking up all these various artist albums on itunes because i'd save up itunes vouchers for my birthday and christmas and then i would efficiently spend my money by getting an album with like 40 tracks on it with different artists on them. And so I could just go through all these tunes and, and figure out what I liked and what I didn't like. And from there, then I was like, oh, I really like this deep house stuff. Let's go down here. And then I liked, you know, typical house music and then funky house. So a lot of my early episodes, like in 2019, when I was actually getting into my DJing and, and more established, a lot of it was a lot of funky stuff like disco, more disco inspired stuff, soulful house. And I love the way the vocals are put together. I love the way the guitars came together. And it was just, you know, really cool summary kind of music. And nowadays I've gone further back into what I used to like, which is the the harder and the, the, the grittier and the more depth in the tracks that really, you know, take you from one place to another and has a less cheesy feel to the sort of classic house uh, sound. And so that's been my real journey of going from, you know, I've, I really liked rock music. I got into my electronic music with... Um, dubstep and and drum and bass and then now I'm sort of right on the edge of brand new house music which is minimal and I'm getting to my Romanian minimal which is a special genre of minimal and dub minimal and all these sort of things that are you know pushing the real boats out and testing the the waters of what's going to be the next big thing so that's my short history on how I got into music what about you <clears throat> well geez uh so I've always been a singer a vocalist I mean, probably since I was five, I remember sitting in a room in, in my mom's apartment with a little like 24 key, probably not even 24 keys, little keyboard that had like the pre-programmed drum, like uh, drum loops and just sitting there, you know, on the floor holding one, one button down and and letting it loop and then switching between you know i was probably five or six at that point and then when i was 11 i got a guitar for christmas and then that kind of sat you know it was it was really frustrating do you play the guitar have you ever tried oh uh, yeah i got to about grade four or five with guitar yeah so when you're first starting out and you have little you have little kid hands <laughs> <laughs> mm -hmm, and you're mm -hmm. trying to play a full-sized guitar and i had uh the 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 gift itself was 
the acoustic guitar, the the hard case, and then a stack of of ma- uh, books and magazines to sort of teach myself. And so I would learn one chord, and then I would try to change to the next chord over and over again until I was frustrated and threw the guitar in the corner. Then, <laughs> did you learn on uh, sheet music or did you learn on uh, tab? It was tab. I wish right. I knew how to read music. I feel like that's a yeah. big, it's a big shortcoming. I need, I need to take the plunge and, and force myself to learn. Well, see, I did, I did play saxophone for about a year and a half at school oh, because wow. there was nobody, you know, there, there was the band, the school band, and there was nobody to teach me how to play the guitar in that band. So I learned how to play the saxophone and I learned a little bit of me. You know, I learned how to read music a little bit, but not enough to, you know, saxophone was lame. I wanted to play the guitar. There was no uh, guitar option. So I moved to a different school uh, not because of the not because of the band offerings, but just because that was kind of my childhood. Uh, you know, the lease ends in your uh, on your rental, and so you move to a new place, and often that meant a new school. Moving around with my mom, and uh, landed in a in a place that had a jazz band, and I decided I was going to learn how to play drums because drums were way cooler than saxophone. Totally. So I got into playing drums first with the, the, the main school band and then got into the jazz band. And there were a few guitar players in the jazz band. So I learned as much as any of them would teach me while, you know, like before rehearsal and after rehearsal. And uh, what what really ultimately did it for me, though, was uh, what what got me hooked on playing the guitar was I went to summer camp uh, one year. I think it was actually the year after I'd first gotten this acoustic guitar as a gift. And my camp counselor had a an acoustic guitar with a little acoustic guitar pickup, you know, the the bit that sends the sound from the guitar into the amplifier, which he also had a little like, uh, you know, hook it to your belt sort of street musician type of amplifier, but he could, he could turn on the overdrive and give you that gritty electric, oh, yeah. electric guitar sound. <laughs> so it was basically the coolest thing ever to, you know, an 11 year olds or, or I'm, I might've been 12 at that point, but he taught me to, how to play uh breakfast at tiffany's by deep blue something and i should i'm i'm on the fly my mom hates it when i do this uh, just play a bit <laughs> it's nice having those kind of people to kind of hold your hand just that little bit i wish i had that when i was dj when i was learning how to dj yeah, I mean I wouldn't even part, I wouldn't even know where to begin. How did how did that come about for you? So there was a fa- there was a family friend that was a DJ. Um they weren't anything like big or anything like that, but 
they inspired me to get into DJing. I thought it was really cool. And so when I was 14, I got my first pair of decks and it was a tractor control S4, which is just a, let's say something between, you know, like a one and two foot wide uh, decks with four channels on it. And you had to plug it into your laptop or computer to use it. And you had to use this software called, uh, you know, tractor to put all your stuff in there. And uh, it was a really good learning experience uh, trying to, first of all, learn how to put songs together. Like you go from knowing nothing about tracks and then going, okay, I need to make these two tracks the same speed in BPM. So I've got this one tune that's 180 and I've got this other tune that's like 120. And then you start to realize that's never going to work because as soon as you bring that 120 track all the way up to 180, it's going to sound really, really weird. And then you realize, okay, so I need to make a playlist. And my personal opinion is that track selection is literally half the work because you've got to get tunes that sound good together, try your best to get, you know, keys that aren't going to clash and get songs that are within, you know, sort of 10 BPM range. Or if you're going to expand that even more, at least get songs that are going to be in between so you can traverse, you know, different speeds without, you know, mangling the song too much. And so that just took trial and error of literally just playing with them after school, at the weekends, you know, getting my favorite tracks and banging them together and recording them and putting them up. I, I remember there was this website called House Mixes. I don't know if it's still around, but I would put tunes up there and there would be people that would comment on my mixes going, sounds good, but, and then they would write like stuff I need to be doing better because... You know, when I first started mixing and recording stuff, I would just take the crossfader, which is this thing that just goes from one side of the decks to the other side and just kind of like whack it across almost immediately without really mixing anything together. And he was like, do it a little bit slower. And once I started to really work with transitioning from one song to the next, it became less of going from this song and I'm just going to get to that song, you know, to survive the next five minutes where I can choose another track and get to the next song. It became a more of a thing of how do I make the transition from one song to the next sound good? And then slowly I added my own style. I cut away the crossfader, which someone which I looked up was a thing that most people do is you just turn off the crossfader and you just use the volumes of the channels. So I was on channel A and B and you just use the volume of the channels instead to push the volume up and bring the volume down and then to make the transitions even, you know, sexier, you can start to mess with the EQ, take the bass out of one track, push the next track in and then whack the bass up on that and swap the bass lines over. That always sounds cool. And this sort of thing, just it just takes time. It just take, took ages to learn. And then you've got to beat match by ear, get the songs lined up by ear and stop using the sync button. And all this stuff was just like, yeah, I don't know. It, it's just one of those things where I, I guess anyone that learns an instrument or anything, it's just uh, a thing that you just do from practice and you just yeah, get better at it. That's the art, the art behind it. So uh, housemixes.com takes you to flirtivize dot com where you can uh make dates with attractive singles in your area <laughs> okay so okay so but i, I don't I know looked it up and it, i don't know if it was supposed a, to be a dot com <laughs> so i think it's house dash mixes.com i've just looked it up and it's still there although it looks completely different 
than what I remember it being. A little update. Yeah, it's completely different. I remember having to contact my internet service provider because they were blocking this website on my internet for some reason. Obviously, they didn't like them, just people just blasting up like pirated uh, music on there or something like that. So did you ever have any uh, collaborators? Did you, were, did you have any siblings that got into this along with you? No, I had a couple of friends at school that liked music and we kind of collaborated sometimes, but I always felt like I was the one that was really the one that was mostly into it. And they were just kind of like doing it for fun. Uh, yeah, they, they, they were like, oh, yeah, we'll do this and we'll, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll do a few bits and pieces. But it was really me that was, you know, like running the old Facebook group with everyone in it and really spending the time i was the only one with decks like no one else had dj decks right so it was really difficult for anyone else to really learn how to dj so go into uh, that go go into the equipment what when you say a deck what what mm -hmm. is a deck what do you need it for and what does it do exactly okay so there's different kinds of decks so you have one called a controller and that's usually an all-in-one system where you have the mixer in the middle and that is where all your eq is that's where the sound comes out of the of the mixer and to speakers or to your computer or whatever the hell and you have your levels on there so you can control the levels and then you've got your usually what they call uh decks on either side and you can have two four however many you like really depending on the mixer you have and that's where, and that's where you load go. that's where you load your music in that's where the tape goes or that's where the cd goes that's where your usb stick goes so in a controller that's all in one system and that's what I started with. And that's what I still use today, although I use Pioneer equipment today. And um, in the clubs, they use usually separate equipment um, so that you can have usually what they call a CDJ. It's a CD. I don't remember, I don't remember what J stands for, but, you know, Pioneer NS2000 or something. That was the club standard about five, ten years ago. And that's just like a simple thing where you have a jog wheel and the jog wheel controls uh, the speed of the track so you can kind of touch it and move it in different directions that slowly slightly slows it down or speeds it up and that helps you align the two tracks together when you're mixing on the mixer you have something called a cue and when you press that cue you can hear the track even with the volume all the way down so you can hear what you're going to play before you play it and that helps you sync the tracks up before you pull the volume up on that on that uh, channel to mix it in so you have these like three elements where you got your your decks you got your first deck, you got your second deck, and then you got your mixer in the middle that's going to mix the tracks between the two decks either side. And so that's that's your basic setup of equipment. And you know, really to DJ, you don't need anything else. You can add speakers, you can add a computer to record stuff. You can do whatever you like, really. So, did you ever spend any time uh, composing your own music? I did do a little bit. The, the problem was, is I I didn't have a lot of time and composing music for me takes an incredibly long amount of time because I was having to learn how to make house music, learning how to make all these things, which are really complicated. Um, and you can cut corners and use like samples and splices and stuff and download loops and stuff like that. But I wanted to really learn how to make a beat arrangement, how to make a baseline, how to do these things. And these days I'm a little bit 
I'm a little bit more knowledgeable and it's something that I'd, I'd love to do in the future. But it's sort of one of those things where I feel like I have so much stuff going on in my life right now. If I added making tracks to that, it's just another thing that I have to do. And I kind of feel like I would just, uh, I would rather do this really, really well. And maybe in the future when I have extra time, start to make some music than make some music in like the 20 minutes of time I have in the day and just make music that I don't even like. So can you now with your equipment run, uh, run a computer into your decks and then run it out into another computer? Yeah. Yeah. Currently with, with the controller, like I have it set up. So, um, when I record the podcast, I have my ginormous pioneer X DJ twos or whatever they are. Uh, and I have them set up on the computer. So I load my tracks in from the computer cause that's where it has all the playlists on it. Then I record it using the computer and then out of the decks comes my XLRs that goes out to my speakers, but you can go into another machine if you like, you can do whatever you, whatever you like. Yeah. The decks are really, really robust. Cause I can imagine that would be pretty time consuming to work on your work on your beats and then you have to bounce them down, turn them into an MP3 and then, you know, load it onto some stick or burn it onto a CD and then work off of there when you, you know, something exists already for you to play with. And that's not really the point of DJing. It doesn't sound like I'm not an expert. I can make no claims about what, what the point of, of DJing is. But it, to hear you describe it, it sounds like the art comes from the mix and the blending and the matching beats and things like that. Yeah, it's, it's like 50% track selection. So can you put a playlist together of tunes that are just going to sound you know, ridiculously good together? And that's like a huge thing. Like if you can, if you can pick tracks that are going to take you from like, you know, like a down tempo tune, you know, and in the middle, let's do something like really high energy and then bring you down at the end. That's the kind of thing that I like doing on side B. Uh, if you can figure that out, that's your style. And then on top of that, you know, the other half of it is how do you get from one track to another, your transition? And that's the real art to DJing. Some people like to mix really quickly to the tracks. Some people like to draw out their tracks, like the classic old school DJs would drag their transitions out to minutes at a time, you know, looping certain bits or dragging things back. And that was kind of like an art form all on its own. And I'm somewhere in the middle where sometimes I like to just swap the bass lines over and it just sounds, you know, absolutely disgusting. And then uh, sometimes if I'm trying to be more experimental, I might really drag those transitions out between tunes to sort of create a, a different uh, journey in your head, in your ears of what you're listening to. So it is definitely an art form. And then when you transition into making tunes, of course, a lot of DJs have done that over the years where you do, you know, you can do mashups where you can make, you know, custom tunes built out of different tracks and that's a different kind of energy or you can make tracks which a lot of djs did back in the day you can make tracks based on samples of other tracks that you like and put them in that are going to really supplement your mixes at the same time and differentiate yourself uh, from other djs of the time and so there's all kinds of different ways you can go for it but really djing to me is like how do i create a, a real playlist of music that's put together super pro professionally that people are going to be able to just you know switch off and not get bored 
and uh, you know want to listen to it all over and over and over again. Was there ever a time when you were discouraged to the point where you thought, "I'm going to give it up"? Um, I've got to be honest. Like one time. It, I was already DJing, like I was DJing in a Latin uh, bar. So I was DJing a lot of um, Spanish music and my decks just died like in the middle of my set. Oh no. They just, they just straight up died. Um, and there was kind of nothing I could do. I could kind of bring them back. So I, uh, luckily I brought them back and they kind of turned on for the rest of the set, but they died mid set and I had to reset. And it was just, that's just the worst feeling ever because it's like 600 people in the club. They're all dancing. And then suddenly it does this horrific distortion noise. And at that point I was like, I was always having, already having a few issues with the way these decks were set up, which is why I ended up moving to Pioneer from Native Instrument stuff. And then um, I was like, okay, I better get the, because I had a tractor control S4 Mark one. I was like, okay, I'll go to the Mark two. And I used the Mark II for probably a year. And then I used the Mark II when I was recording some of the very earliest uh, podcast episodes when I was recording them at a internet radio station in South London. And the decks, I, the decks, when I turned them on, when I was just about to go live, they didn't turn on. <laughs> Nothing. It was completely dead completely dead and i had them a year and i thought this is just it i'm done with these sort of like half-baked chinese made controllers from native instruments which is a really really good company they're what a german mean? company Ch china makes the best stuff <laughs> <laughs> yeah the, yeah that's it the you know straight off the container man that's uh that's that's chi the chinesium uh decks you gotta man. get the kind made by five-year-olds those are the best that's it. Well, I don't know what kind of five-year-olds they have over there, but they don't make very good audio equipment. I'll tell you that much. The ones with tiny hands. They got those That's tiny it. little hands. Oh, uh, yeah. But I've had, I've had the Pioneers. Let's see. I've had the Pioneers like four years, and they've been awesome. Absolutely awesome. One of my first, you mentioned uh, Native Instruments. One of my first audio interfaces was Native Instruments, and I loved it, and I sold it as a matter of fact to the first guy that uh he who kind of i mean we we met at work and we had good conversation and he said hey we should do a podcast that guy i sold mm. it to him for i i think i i got a pretty good price for it um but i wish i still had it because it would be i mean now doing everything that i'm doing with two computers it would be really useful to have another audio interface but um, yeah i know what you mean moving more into you so you have no are you an only child no i have a i have a sibling you have a sibling mm -hmm. uh older younger close in age pretty close yep and are are you uh is that the family that lives in Canada? No, so my immediate family lives in the UK here. And my dad's side lives in Canada. And you were born here? Or born yeah, I was there born, in the UK? I was, I, was born here in the, I was born here in the UK. Yeah. And did I, did I misunderstand? So, so we, 
share articles uh, back and forth over the, you know over the course of the week to in you know familiarize each other with what the other finds interesting and and you know decide mm. what we're going to talk about and I mm-hmm. elected this time to just say let's forget the news for a week and uh, get to know each other. Um, but did I mistake you telling me that you could read that Slavic article or, or I don't even know what, what the text is called. Okay. So I can't read Cyrillic. Um, I can understand funnily enough from watching so much Russian and Ukrainian content, I can actually understand just a little bit of it, (laughs) uh, but I can't read Cyrillic. So I use Google translate on, uh, Chrome. I okay, I got you. That's I mean, yeah. that was what immediately occurred to me when you you sent me that article. Like, oh, he's he's using Google Translator. But I don't know. I'm I'm a fan of languages and linguistics. I can I can I I took a trip to Spain a few years ago, Barcelona, and I could speak well enough to uh you know, get myself around order in restaurants and uh, you know, Nothing, nothing very impressive. Um, That's great. But I have, so I've got a little bit of Spanish, a little bit of German, and they often mix together after I've had a bit to drink. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So, yeah, I mean, do you, do you speak any other languages or just? uh, I would love, I would love to, but unfortunately I don't. I'd really like to learn. At the moment, I'm 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 going between like, do I want to learn German or Italian? Because I really like both those languages. Like, I just came back from Austria, uh, Innsbruck, and uh, I don't know. I I could speak a little bit of it. I'd understand a little bit of it. Um, yeah, and I just really enjoyed using that language. Actually, it's just fun. Yeah, it's it's cool. Like being able to uh, being able to communicate well. You know, conversational level. German, you know, or or anything is really mm-hmm. appealing. But it, you know, where where's the time? Like they they say, you really have to immerse yourself. And my uh, one of my uncles was a German exchange student in high school, and then spent a lot of time living over there. And uh, he's gotten to the point where he's he's told me stories that he he would you know tell his. German acquaintances that he was American and they wouldn't believe him. And it's just, <laughs> oh, I'm, I'm, I'm so jealous. I would love to know. I would love to know more languages. H- have yeah, you, me too. Have you ever been to, uh, have you ever been to America? I have been to America one time, but not really for a proper visit. I was going on a cruise around the Caribbean. And so uh, that's we how I ended up to... in Spain, actually. Oh really? Yeah, that's a long fucking boat ride. It is. Yeah, that is a long way to go <laughs> by boat, man. That's a seriously long ass way. Yeah, Too we long. took the. F- I, we took I wouldn't plane recommend to, it. Uh, How long was yours? Oh, it was like a week or something. It was. It was a decent amount of time. Like I, I visited. Like one of the weirdest countries I've ever visited was was Haiti. We ended up going to Haiti. Oh wow! And I was just. It was like such a surreal experience because we. You know, we, we were on the second largest boat in the world at the time. It was like massive. 
I mean, I've never seen anything like it in my life. It was like 50 decks. I mean, it just, it just it looked like a, a, it looked like a building. I mean, it looked like a ginormous building on its side almost. Uh, and we pitched up at this beach and the boat is just about as long as the beach. And the beach is like fenced off with about 10 to 12 foot high, you know, fences to keep like the people out from oh. coming on this beach. So I felt like one of those like English colonizers or something <laughs> that had landed on the beach and, you know, we had like uh, staked our English flag or something in the in the beach so no one <laughs> else could come on there. That's I genuinely felt I was like, this is really uncomfortable. Like I don't I don't I'm not enjoying this. Yeah, I'm not much for the the touristy vibe. Like I, I do I do not like being a tourist. Even though I mean no. I, I should say I like being a tourist, but I don't like being perceived as a tourist. Yes, I agree. And the English are the worst tourists ever, I think, by far. By it's a long way. It's a stereotype. <laughs> it's not even a stereotype, though. It's just genuinely true. Like, if you see another British person on holiday, you're like, oh, I'm embarrassed already. Got his backpack because, with his, with his yeah. socks his socks pulled up high and his camera. <laughs> oh, it's 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 the worst thing because you know they they go they go to somewhere like Spain or Tenerife or wherever the hell they go, and uh, instead of eating local food, they'll find the nearest English like chip shop or something and get a fish and chips, or they'll get like a curry <laughs> or something or a burger. And I'm like, what are you doing? Like you could have that shit at home. Oh man, I so one of my one of my great friends from uh, from high school. We- he decided that he was going to be a racist at, at some point. I don't know why. He was a very troubled individual. Wait, he, he decided to be a racist? Yeah. I mean, I swear that was how, because I'd known him literally since I was 15. You know, he was, right. uh, he was like, I, I, I don't think he was officially adopted. I mean, he was officially adopted. Um, you know, part of the reason he was having his troubles. Um. The, but the family that adopted him were very religious and, you know, to hear some of the stories that he would tell about them, they were awful people. So he ended up living with uh, another, you know, one of our classmates and we ended up starting a band together, uh, you know, his, his classmate and I, uh, his, his first name's Andy, I don't think he would mind me telling the story um but andy and i eventually so it was kind of a funny situation you know no, knowing him since i was 15 or 16 uh and and then you know i i moved into that same house for a while um you know to kind of do the the band thing and then we parted ways i mean we still stayed in contact but you know how it is once once mm. life starts to get more mature for you and it's about work and yeah. maybe one hobby if you're lucky then we we meet up again and he's joined the army and i think that's what did it i think there was some there were some bad influences in in the army and he decided that he was going to get a you know a nazi tattoo or or more perhaps oh no and <clears throat> we decided that we were going to go uh, you know, we all got together for a good time. You know, he was on leave or something. <coughs> Pardon me. And uh, we decided we were going to go to a, a Mexican restaurant. And he decided that this was going to be a great time 
to exercise some of his uh, racist, you know, preferences or or oh, wh- no. whatever you would call them. Yeah, it was dreadful. Oh, no. So we sit down and I'm telling him like, dude, shut up. Like, what are you doing? This is be- because I mean, just my my foundation when it comes to racism and and stereotypes and stuff like that is that it's it's pure ignorance and that's why like i know i'm always saying like hey let's play up the stereotypes let's play up the the british and american stereotypes because it's funny to me and it's not that i want to make fun of you know british culture it's that i want to make fun of the stereotypes themselves Mm. and so he orders we're, we're sitting down at this mexican restaurant and he orders a hamburger like right. after, I mean, I, I don't know what he said to any of the staff, but there was immediate animosity and because of course the staff are all Spanish speaking immigrant Mexicans or, you know, wherever Latin. Mm-hmm. So when the food comes, he's got the biggest hair, like not accidentally draped over the, the food like this. This hair had been carefully placed inside of his hamburger and and <laughs> smashed in there. And he was like, oh, you know, what the fuck? And, and trying to be all. And I was like, shut up. You deserve it. Because of this garbage that you're that you're pulling with not only being a prick to these people, but then ordering a hamburger at a Mexican restaurant just to, to make a point like, oh, I'm not going to eat your Mexican food because I'm better than you. I mean, I don't mean to rail against, he, you know, like I said, he was a troubled individual and he had these issues with, I mean, firstly being adopted, then sort of being disowned by his adopted family and his last, his final prayer. Like we... We really went through some shit together because he, uh, like, we both got into drugs, like the bad kind of drugs, you know, not like the fun, you know, on the weekend kind of drugs, like the hard, these are going to ruin your life kind of drugs. And that was part of what pushed him, I think, into going into the military because that was kind of a last gasp for him like i've got to do something or i'm gonna because he had a trust fund that i i have no idea how much it was but oh he was a trust fund kid as well yeah sort of i mean i don't know where he got it like maybe there was some some of his biological family that sort of knew what what he was going into but he one day so this is Right out of high school, we're, we're trying to find, I mean, he worked at a donut shop for a while. You know, I worked in the construction business and then he got, you know, when we were roommates at the time and he got tired of me taking off to go to work all day. And he said, Hey, just quit your job and I'll support us out of this trust fund. And we'll, I don't know if part of his sales pitch was let's just hang around the apartment and do drugs all day instead. But that was ultimately what we would do. So you can imagine how that went. And I don't know if he ran out of all of his money, but at a certain point it was like, man, all right, we, we have to go back and find jobs 
fortunately enough for me, like we managed to stay out of any kind of legal trouble. Um, and, and man, I mean, I think about it all the time, like how bad life could have been if we had gotten caught doing so. I mean, we never like tried to break into anybody's house or steal anything, but you know, when you're dealing with drugs like that, you, you just get pulled over and your whole life could change in, in the blink of an yeah, eye. For sure. That's it, man. And once you're in the system, then the system's got you. And that's exactly how they want it. But yeah, this isn't sure. about my conspiracy theories, at least not for now. Did you ever have any, uh, I mean, it's, it's, it's not fun to talk about, you know, uh, mature adult run-ins with the law, but when you were, uh, you know, before you were of the legal age, what was the, uh, what was the, the biggest trouble you ever got in, like as a kid? Bro, I'm going to be honest, like I didn't get into that that big of a trouble when I was younger. Like I didn't get into drugs or anything. I didn't, I didn't really drink. I was really boring. I was, uh, you know, that's not uncommon. That's not uncommon for musicians. My, my experience, like musicians and, and artists like that in school, big time nerds. And I was too. I just, I I just fell in with the rock band kids that wanted to, you know, drink and smoke pot and go to parties and that's where I got in. That that was that was my biggest, the biggest trouble that I got in. Yeah, well, I mean, that's pretty. Yeah, that's pretty much on trend. I mean, for, for me, it was like you know, I was sitting at home messing around with computers and all kinds of other technology related stuff, which is you know what's got me to where I am today. Um, so that that was basically my childhood. You know, I was like playing Minecraft and uh, setting up Minecraft servers and. Oh man, I loved, I loved games. I, I loved games so much. You know, it's, it's funny, like this hasn't really occurred to me until now, although I have these kind of thoughts all the time. If my parents would have let me play on the internet and play video games as much as I want to, I may never have become a musician because that was, that was what I wanted to spend all my time doing. But my parents were like, no, you can play for one hour a day and then two hours a day on the weekend. So when I couldn't game or, you know, talk with people in chat rooms, it was, well, I guess I'll play my stupid guitar since my parents are dicks and won't let me do whatever I want. (laughs) (laughs) So naturally, Uh. I'll, I'll write a song that that's what I started doing, uh, Right, right from the get go. Like I didn't, I'm not a very good guitar player. I'm not a very good drummer. I'm a, you know, I think most people that played with me would say that if I was going to make it on a professional level, it would be as a vocalist, even though I don't really consider myself a very good vocalist either, but I have low self-esteem. <laughs> I'm a, I'm my own worst critic as I've, you know, brought up before. Um, but as soon as I could, you know, as soon as I knew four chords and I could make my hands change between them, I started writing songs and, you know, got, got into a band. We entered a talent show when I was 16 and it wasn't, it actually wasn't 
too long after that when I got into my my biggest trouble ever. Uh, because we played we played a gig in this little hole in the wall club and uh there was beer and weed and oh and there was um nitrous oxide oh that's huge here right now yeah yeah i mean it's i wish a little more came in the cans of whipped cream if you know what i'm saying <laughs> it's pretty fun for a minute although you li- you can literally feel your brain cells dying so one of the girls that i had invited to the show went to school with me and had come to the party and my mom cornered her and said so you went to that party with my son what uh tell me what was going on there and it was a private school christian school um not upscale at all it like th- this was the school that you went to um, when you got kicked out of the public school, that was like the reputation that it had. That's not why I went there. Cause I never got kicked out of school. I was a pretty good kid, pretty good student, et cetera. But she told me after she ratted me out, she said, I just, I'm sorry. I just couldn't lie to your mom when she asked me what was going on. So I think I was, it, it must've been my senior year in high school, but I was grounded Basically, until I moved out, which is part of the reason I moved out when I was 18 and into the houses of my friends and their parents. Just, you know, so that I could be out of the, you know, it was it probably, I mean, I don't know. I, I don't regret making the decision I, because I feel like if there was, if anything had changed through that period of my life I would be in a much different place than I am now and I'm good with where I'm at right now so you know warts and all I'm good with it but you never had any kind of you never had any kind of life altering you know you're you're grounded indefinitely kind of moments not really man I gotta be honest I was super boring you know that's good though I mean that's that's not I I have no judgments for that. I would I would encourage everyone to do this. That's one of my mantras. Like do the right thing. Do the right thing whenever you can. And when you just look at things when when you look at your decisions through that lens, like what's the right thing to do? Not what's the thing that's going to benefit me the most. What's the right thing to do in this situation? I mean, it hasn't always been. I guess I had to make some mistakes and struggle a little bit to arrive at that. But that, but that was another thing. Another thing that kept me on the straight and narrow with my grades was if I didn't get uh 3.0 or better every, you know, every report card, then they would take my car away. Oh, that sucks. Yeah. It was pretty brutal, especially because uh, it was a rural environment not not through my whole childhood but by when i turned 13 we moved out onto a ranch and so my my summers were full of digging holes for fence posts and ditches for you know 
electrical and optical cable. And uh, that was how, I mean, that was how I earned money because before I had a car or, you know, before I was of, of uh, legal working age, there wasn't anywhere close by for me to go earn any money. And then to sort of add insult to injury, it was, you better have, you better keep your grades up or you have no car. And I was, I was like the only one I was at least after turning 16, you know, you get to that age where you can drive a car. You know, I have no idea how that even works in the UK. You, you must have to have a driver's license of some kind. Yeah, for sure. So like when you turn 17, you can uh, get your provisional license after you yeah, you just apply for it and then you have to pass your theory test. And then from there you can apply to do a practical test. And so if you pass while you're 17, you can drive from, from 17. But usually it's about 17 or 18 when people start start driving. And, you know, I lived in the country. So before that, I couldn't, before I had a car, I literally couldn't make any money. Because we lived in the middle of, we live in the middle of nowhere. So, uh, you know, and the, but the bus situation in my current county is just a nightmare. Like it takes an hour and a half to get 10 minutes into town. I mean, it's just, it's just ridiculous. Yeah, it was never an option for me either. And, and it was sort of the same situation, you know, middle, middle of nowhere, you know, an hour to the, uh, to the nearest city. Well, no, that's, that's not entirely true. So I don't mind telling you because I don't live there anymore, but I grew up in the, the Portland, Oregon area, West coast of the States, you know, sort of middle of the country. And, uh, from the city of Portland, we were an hour away, but there was a nearby town that had, uh, you know, some bigger shops and uh, movie theater and things like that. So it, it, it wasn't, I mean, it, but if you tried, it was a, a, you know, 20 miles. I mean, maybe not 20 miles, but a, tw- a 20 minute drive at least to, to the nearest place. Well, basically the nearest place that you could take a job. There was a, a gas station nearby that I, I worked for a while. Do you, do you have to, uh, do you have fueling attendance at your uh, petrol stations? No. You do all that petrol yourself? Stations, we, we, yeah, we, we have to, in the UK, we've got to do everything ourselves. You know, we don't have that American uh, customer service here, you well, know. Uh, <laughs> In, yeah. there, there's only, I mean, I, I, don't, I haven't really been keeping up, but I think there's only two states in, uh, in the U.S. that have an attendant to pump the gas for you. And it's like, it's like a law. They won't, like, if you try to, I mean, I live in a state now where you, you have to pump it yourself. But it, it would be, you know, if, they, if people would, from neighboring states would come in and try to pump their own gas. Oh, hold on. I have to do that for you. It's the law, $5,000 fine, yeah. Get back in your car, sir. <laughs> God damn. <coughs> That's crazy. So you started, yeah. you started driving about 17. Any, uh, any crashes? Any, uh, no. No, uh, no, no. No speeding violations? No. The, I mean, the worst I got was a parking ticket uh, one time. Which was the 
you know, the local tyrants putting their parking laws upon me. Is that the general, is that the general sentiment among the population about, you know, parking, you know, parking tickets and, uh, jaywalking, but I mean, what I'm getting at is- Jaywalking isn't a crime. Jaywalking isn't a crime here in the UK, so, um- the sentiment here is uh, basically that the police officers you see in your day-to-day are just looking for some violation that they can cite you for as opposed to actually protecting and serving. Is it a similar attitude there? So it's a, wor- it's a worse situation than that because the police don't actually do anything around parking. The, the, the parking uh, we have parking attendants that are employed by the local council, not by the police. And they actually have no, like, uh, sort of jurisdiction in terms of, like, legal. All they do is walk around town and just note down when you turned up and and then ch- keep checking back on your car to make sure that uh, your car is within the sort of, like, time period in which you can be there that you've paid for. And if you're over that, then they fine you and it's usually like a ridiculous fine like you know you might pay two pound fifty for a for a a, for parking and then they'll give you a fine for like 70 pounds but oh if you pay within 14 days you can you only have to pay 35 pounds so it's one of those things where it's just a money-making scheme for the council but then it doesn't make any sense because it just makes people go to places that aren't in town you they just go to a retail center which is going to have loads of parking that's for free and all your shops are there so they won't go into town and then sure enough the shops in the town like start dying off because there's no one going to town anymore so it's just a completely fucked up situation yeah it's it's really bizarre how uh you know politicians and and you know city officials they don't think in in into the future at all it's like there's there's this uh corporate mentality that i mean i always rail against it Always, because it seems so just ignorant to me to run anything, run any business three, you know, one, one quarter at a time. No, we gotta, we gotta show profits at every, at every quarter. If we make a terrible decision this month, we'll take care of it in a couple of months when we got to show profits in the next quarter and on and on and on has, has now filtered into government where it's decisions like that. Like, ah, oh, we're just, you know, whatever. We'll just ticket everybody and, or, you know, charge crazy prices for parking. And if that causes a problem, well, oh, well, we'll fix it when that problem arrives. And that's probably yeah, now, like now- the most leftist view that I have. You, you've, self-identified as a, a libertarian um and cheers but to that by the way i i am too maybe even a little bit more extreme than a libertarian i i believe that government should be as small and uh uh unintrusive as possible because you know it's like i i can find articles that talk about how roads and bridges were built and how you know society was maintained before the invention of you know the modern taxes system that that 
came in night in 1913 i think it was but i don't i i don't fall squarely on one side or the other what are some views that you share with the left so there are some things that i think that government are are just good at and the only vessel for that to happen is usually through a government entity like for example in the uk we have a nationalized health service, the NHS. And that's just not something that could ever be done uh, privately as, 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 as it stands today. You could have, you know, we have private uh, health here in the UK and it works fine. But as a nationalized health service where there's one thing across the whole thing, that would become like a private monopoly. And that's just not going to work. Like a corporate entity, rightly so, would just charge infinite amounts of money because you have to use it. And so for that reason, I'm like, well, if you're going to like, if you're going to have that, then it should be done by the government. And that's where I kind of stand on it. It's like, if, if the decision is as a nation that we're going to do this, then the government is well suited to that. The, the line which I draw is it the stuff which could quite easily be outsourced to the private sector and stuff that, and, and just overall decision decision making um, and various other regulations that, that don't need to be enforced. In the UK, compared to the US and some of the states, the UK government is massive, uh, you know, as, as, as like an entity per capita. You know, the amount of regulation, the amount of government overall is absolutely ginormous in the UK. And even if you just trimmed it back 10%, I mean, the level of economic uh, uh, growth that you would unlock by just regulate, just unregulating certain things would just be enormous. It, it just have enormous effects because they have, they have tightened it down so much to a point where you can barely do anything without getting permission from someone at government to do something. I mean, even... Even to run your own company, you have to pay the government to incorporate it. You've got to pay the in information commissioner's officer to, for GDPR compliance. You've got to register for VAT. You've got to do all this shit just so you can just sell something to someone else. I mean, it's just outrageous. If you want to be a sole trader, that's, that's one thing. But if you actually want to make a limited company where the economic situation of the company is limited from your own you know there's all this stuff that you have to go through it's an absolute nightmare and this is like the majority of small businesses in the uk and that's just one aspect you know another aspect is like you know and i look at like something like legalizing something like marijuana um you know i i don't really have any experience i've had marijuana like maybe a couple of times uh, and it, you know, it's fine. It's whatever. I don't really care about the drug. I look at it purely from a libertarian stance. Like I'm more of like a capitalistic libertarian. It's like we can make more money as a nation and we can have less taxes as a nation if we just stop giving a shit about this marijuana drug, because that means we don't have to pay for people to go to jail. And if you really want to, you can put a bit of tax on it and make a bit of money if you really want to do that and pay for some other socialistic policies that they want to do down the line. It's stuff like that. It's that's where my head's at. I'm like, okay, if the government is absolutely necessary for this thing, uh, then fine. Like in the current status of the UK, we have loads of sewage going into the waters because our private corporations 
have basically a, a local monopoly over the water. So they charge whatever they like and they're held to no standard, um, which is a problem. You know, they're like a corporate monopoly. And so you need a government or at least some sort of independent body that's going to regulate that, that's going to tell the companies you can't just put sewage into the local river and and have that you know impunity it's just you know so that so i'm i'm sort of halfway you know i being in the uk for me it's easy to be a libertarian because our government is so massive that you know if we cut it down to even your size you know per capita of government then that'd be great yeah it's it's weird it's the the government in in theory i think both in 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 the us and the uk the government exists, the government's primary function, because see, when I, when I think about an, 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 anarch, an anarchical society, which mm. the, the, the definition of anarchy that I prefer is not no rules, it's no leaders. <clears throat> but when I think down that path, logically, like, okay, <clears throat> Anarchy, no leaders. The number one problem that I see crop up is the problems that we're dealing with right now. Like, oh, these mega corporations that can do whatever they want. They can afford the best lawyers and they can afford to pay them for years. You know, this, this is one, one of the biggest problems, I think, that is kind of flying under the radar is these, these companies, Amazon and Facebook, that are trying to change copyright laws what they do now common business practice is a one of their sellers on amazon for example will create a new product and sell it on amazon well if it does good business and it's a good invention amazon will steal the idea manufacture it for cheaper and then put their products in the search in the search results right above you know or or below this this independently created product and if that's not enough and this this you know savvy business owner sees what's going on and decides to hire a lawyer well they can then just basically amazon can basically just wait them out because they have essentially infinite resources to pay lawyers until this poor small business owner inventor runs out of money. So if we're paying, I mean, bro, I pay more and I'm sure you do too. pay more in taxes than I do for anything else every month. The amount of taxes I pay is more than my rent, more than my car payments, more than, more than any of it. Yet we're paying for this system that will prioritize the giant corporations and in my in my opinion down my 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 line of logic in this path to anarchy the government needs to be there to protect us from these mega corporations doing things like stealing our inventions but we don't have that we have yeah for sure but basically I think, I think it would... they call it oligarchy in in America yeah yeah, I think what it boils down to is like, you know, what's your value for money? You know, I pay the government X amount of money and what do I get in return? I think a lot of people in the UK are feeling right now like... Parking tickets. I pay... 
Yeah, for sure, right? So it's like, you know, to get a car, you have to pay VAT on the car, which is 20%. You have to pay road tax in order to register the car on the road every year. Um, so there are these all these taxes, right, that people pay for. And, you know, the, the quality of the roads right now in the UK is the lowest I've ever seen it. It's, it's just uh, terrible. I mean, do terrible you, quality. Do you relate that to COVID? Have you seen a general decline just in in all in in the quality of everything post covid no, mm, no. i'm not gonna say the- you know they spent a bunch of money in covid and that is a problem right I, I would say covid really did hit our national health service hard because it basically like pushed everyone's uh appointments back like a year or so and there's this huge backlog they're trying to get through right now so i, I would say that has been affected specifically by covid but other stuff that was completely irrelevant to the whole covid thing like infrastructure uh planning permission building homes uh, stuff that literally you were allowed to do during covid uh you know fixing the roads fixing all this stuff you know in covid that was the time to fix the roads because no one was bloody using them so they had the money for it you know the government was giving out money left right and center it was crazy it was absolutely mental and so they just are not investing the money. They only invest money in things that are going to look like they're doing something or they're going to be reelected next, you know, next year. You know, they're not actually, you know, when I pay road tax, you know, and it's like, I'm paying road tax. And when I go on the roads, they are absolutely horrendous. And of course, the local council are the ones that determine where the money gets spent on this, that and the other. So, it's kind of dependent on where you live. It's one of the only things that really matters where you live. Like some, they control some of the local services and they're just controlled by like, you know, random busybodies that are just, you know, they're like 60 odd years old. They probably drive once a week. I mean, these aren't people that are like 40 and they're working and then they're in, in council. These are people like 60, 70, 80 years old in the council that are on their pensions. They don't give a shit about anything else. You know, and that's, that's not like a, a crazy generalization. That well, is yeah, I th- genuinely I you, what it happens. I, I think you mentioned last time that that's, that's the bulk of the, the electorate in the UK, right? Is, you know, your, your voters are that same age that you're talking about, you know, the 60, 70 year olds that aren't really, you know, they look out the window and go, Oh, look, they spruced up the park. Oh, those politicians are doing their jobs. They've earned my vote. No, absolutely. Like our roads are terrible, like completely terrible. Like I'm talking big potholes in the center of town that are like at least 15 centimeters deep. You know, that's like six inches deep. Uh, And then they go, right, we're going to revamp the town square. And they're going to spend 16 million quid, 17 million quid on that town square, which nobody goes to. And no one gives a flying about that goddamn town center. And they're going to spend 17 million quid on it. Meanwhile, the rest of the town, you know, the infrastructure wise is just horrendous. It's just horrendous. But it's because these decisions are made by, you know, random people that, 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 don't share any sort of uh, long-term critical thinking of of how a city is or how a town uh, grows. And similarly, you've got these opinions now from these from this kind of electorate where it's completely fine for the national pension to go up by inflation. They call it the triple lock pension, where it goes up by inflation, wage growth, or two point five percent, whichever is higher. And so the pensions go up by 10%, which is an absolutely outrageous number for it to go up, right? And then they turn around and go, 
everyone else shouldn't get a wage increase because it's pushing up inflation. And that is just an absolutely outrageous thing to say, because basically what they're saying is it's fine for, you know, the socialized, socialistic element of getting your pension or civil service pay to go up. But, you know, if you're a private citizen and you're working hard and you want to earn some more money and you want to go for that, you know, uh, wage increase or you want to change jobs and go to something that pays more, that's, you know, you're the one that's causing the, the major issue. You should you should earn less so that you don't have that much disposable income. But me, you know, a 75 year old gray hair that literally does nothing all day because I've paid for the I've voted for the Tories for the last 10, 20 years to get my triple lock pension. It's just outrageous for people to say these kind of things. You know, I'm the other way. I'm like, hey, look, sorry, but that's not how real life works. You get a pension, fine if it goes up by two and a half percent or whatever and just maintains a little bit of growth. So you're not super left behind, you know, as a state pension. I'll eat that as a, as as sort of like a social libertarian brain turning on right now. I will take that. That's fine. Whatever. But to t- but to have a ten percent increase and then turn around and say, as a private citizen, you should just like you should just basically work your ass off and pay a bunch of tax so we can have this increase. I mean, it's just it's just outrageous. It makes me so angry. Genuinely, so angry. Yeah, it's it's frustrating to see so much see to see so much of your hard-earned money go to things that that make no difference while while your roads decay do you feel like the the media in the uk is do you feel like you're represented in the media do you do you think the media speaks you know speaks out on these issues to try to create awareness to maybe shake up the voting trends or do you think that they just go nah. along you know that they don't want to upset any politicians no nah, they, they don't want to they don't wanna upset because what they'll do is the bbc will find some old person in the middle of nowhere that's like on death's door or something and they'll go wow if they don't put up the pension this person's literally going to starve to death or something which is like the one percent of pension owners because pension pension earners right own like 35 to 40% of the private assets in the entire country. So they're the richest people. They get a wage increase. And so, the, and then the media goes out and goes, wow, you know, my pension is not stretching as far, even though they get like discounts on everything. They get 30% off bus tickets. They get 30% off train tickets. They get, you know, they don't have to pay the, they get like a gas energy relief in the winter. They get, uh, a, a cut on the BBC TV license and that's a whole nother thing that they should get rid of so they get all this stuff for free and then they get an increase in wages and it's just outra- it's just outrageous like if you're old in this country it is the best deal ever you basically live for free you have no mortgage you've got guaranteed payments that increase by in a ridiculous number each year you get discounts on basically everything and, you know, I was in Costa the other day and some other old people were complaining about they didn't have enough staff in, 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 in like the, the local coffee shop and the place is dirty. And I'm like, yeah, it's because all you guys keep fucking retiring. So there's like no one left to do any of this shit around here anymore. <laughs> now. <coughs> oh, goodness. That's good stuff. And, and a lot of that, I mean, it, it's not that much different here, although the conversation here becomes 
we we have all of these things that we need to do, like you know the education system and and crumbling infrastructure. We've had infrastructure problems for for ages, it seems, but always in the conversation now, currently, and this is my segue. <laughs> what comes up in in the media in the comments section is, oh well, we we uh, we can't we can't afford to take care of our veterans. So we had uh, Memorial Day was was monday it's you know national holiday we all i got the day off of work and and all of that and they say that. they say uh do you do you have what, what's that uh you must have a day like that in the uk we have bank we, yeah we, we have what we call bank holidays uh even though the bank doesn't really take a holiday um but we have them every now and again what's and it called takes a day off work for do you have a day to to honor your your fallen troops um, yes, I don't think people take the day off work though. We all have to do a minute of silence at 11 AM. I think that was for the first world war. Oh, that's nice. What's it called? Oh, you're putting me on the spot. <laughs> no, no, <laughs> that's all right. I think it's actually remembrance day. I think it's actually just called remembrance day. Um, I've just got confirmation from the person behind me that it's called remembrance day. Very good. Yeah, that's, yeah, that's it. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm phoning a friend here. No, no worries. No worries. Um, it was just, it was one of my notes. But anyway, back to my segue. This very smooth segue. <laughs> um, <laughs> the complaint now from the American public when it comes to government spending is, oh, we're, now we're sending a, a, a trillion dollars to Ukraine. Mm. And I have, it's, without trying to get jump ahead into previous conversations we've had i i really have no opinion because i i don't i don't feel confident in any of the information that i get there's a very strong um anti-ukraine or i don't even know if that's a, if that's a good way to put it as as anti-ukraine because it's not it's not really anti-ukraine it's not really pro-russia it's more of america first i guess yeah, we, I, and we don't I know, want I know to what, be sending. Yeah. We don't want to be sending these billions to Ukraine when we have our own problems to deal with. But on the other hand, I don't agree with Russia's decision to invade Ukraine. Now, I know you've done a lot of, uh, well, you've done a lot of amazing things that I know basically nothing about. But mm. how did that? How did you get involved? So I've spoken about before that I was really into technology and uh, coding and everything. And, uh, and that's what I do for work now. And so really I was, as, as soon as the situation started to, started to happen in 20, 2014, I became very interested in the whole situation because I really love Russian history. I like Soviet history. Uh, and so I read and watch a lot of content around that. And I saw this as like, oh, you know, I can be almost on the ground level of everything happening. So in 2014, I, I stuck fairly close to the stories and um, monitored the sort of situation that was that was going on through various uh, media outlets and and people that I started to to meet online. And when the when the situation happened in, I believe it was, you know, the, the war started in 2022, didn't it? It was. Uh, uh yeah in january february time yeah it's just about so, a year old 
yeah, it's just about a year. It's just about a year old, right? So when that started, you know, there were some rumblings um, from the Americans that Russia is amassing a whole bunch of troops on the border of Ukraine. And the, 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 the line of the story was that they were going to invade. And everyone was like, hell nah, they're not going to do it. They're not going to do it. But I'm sitting there thinking they're totally going to do it. They are totally going to do it because. Um, well, that was the sentiment just, here yeah. too. Like, no, it's, it's not going to happen. That's, that's propaganda. They're not actually amassing troops on the border. It's all a bunch of garbage. But like Joe Biden, of all people, was the guy that said they're going to do it. And everybody was saying, no, they're not going to do it. Yeah, so it was one of those things where it was like, you know, because I'd, I'd seen uh, the GPS pictures, I'd seen the logistics lines being set up. And it's sort of one of those things when you see that, your, your immediate thought is, you know, they're saying it's some kind of, the Russians are saying it's just a training exercise. And you're like, well, they could do the training exercise like anywhere in Russia. Why would they need to set up miles and miles and miles of logistics lines and, you know, stockpile loads of live ammunition? You know, these are things that y you only do if you're, if you're planning to use it in, in any manner. So for me, it was like, oh, shoot, okay, something is about to go off. And so I stayed very close to the news, and then suddenly it did go off. And there were a lot of uh, live streams that I was watching of um, Kiev at the time where you could literally hear, like, the anti-air missiles flying in and exploding, and the live stream would cut out, and then it was like, holy moly, this, this thing is kicking off. And... Um, you know, for people that want to look at how you know the war started and kind of progressed in those early days, you, you can look that up. I won't get super into that. I'll focus on, okay, now the war has started. What is going to happen from here? And how do I get an even greater insight into what's happening on the ground? And so I joined the uh, IT army of Ukraine as a main way to go, okay, can we, what, what can we do about this situation? And can we get a better insight? Can I get a better insight into actually what's happening? Because the problem about these kinds of wars these days is the propaganda on both sides, Ukraine, America, whatever, our side, as well as Russia is insane. The propaganda is so insane. They lie on both sides. Um, you know, very typically you might hear of a battle. Russia goes, only 10 people died. And the UK <laughs> Ministry of Defence of U or Ukraine will go, 50 million people died and the war is about to, you know, we're, we're kicking their ass. And really what you have to think is like, well, it's probably somewhere in the middle uh, between 10 and, you know, 10,000 people that died in this battle or something like that. So really I got into the, yeah, I got into the IT army of Ukraine and their main, uh, their main um, aim was to significantly disrupt public and private infrastructure within Ukraine, within Russia, sorry, uh, in order to, in order to just cause them discomfort and to bring um, the war in Ukraine to um, uh, public knowledge. Because at this time, the public in Russia had no idea what was going on in Ukraine. It wasn't really public knowledge. You know, if if you, I highly recommend anyone to watch Vlad uh, Vexler because he's a 
Russian-born uh, philosopher that now lives in London, and he breaks down a lot of uh, the Ukraine and, and and especially Putin and where his mind's at and what the decisions are being made and why they're being made. And he goes into the public in Russia specifically is, you know, uh, there's a big block in the middle of, of let's say, 60% of them are politically agnostic and they have outsourced their political will to Putin in exchange for some uh, private uh, liberties. And Vlad, and then you've got- Vlad Vexler has a podcast yes. on Apple Podcasts. I'm sorry to cut you off. I just wanted to let everybody know. Yeah, Apple Podcasts as well as his YouTube channel, both extremely good uh, bits of content. And so he, he talks about how, okay, on either side of that 60% you know, uh, area of, of, of people that are politically agnostic, you know, they're people on the couch. They don't care about anything other than the fact that, can I make some good money? Can the government most, mostly leave me alone? And that's fine for me. I'll keep voting Putin in. And then you get 20% on either side of that, that 20% goes, we should just bring the nukes out right now and just nuke the whole thing. Nuke the UK. We don't like the UK. Nuke, nuke Biden, that sleepy dude. We don't like that guy. And then you get 20% on the other side that goes, the war is terrible and we should, we should end the war. And so our, our main, our main uh, well, the IT army of Ukraine's main goal was to wake up the population of Russia in order for them to do something about the Putin situation. Because the problem with people, with people like Putin is that he is someone that only does things that's going to further himself and not anyone else. He doesn't care about anything other than things that are going to further his political career and further his power. So do, you, so, think, do you think there's, because there's been, you know, rumors or propaganda or whatever it could be called that he is, mm. he's getting pressure from the leaders around him to make this move into Ukraine, but not just Ukraine to sort of, uh, you know, unite and revive the the old ussr do you think that there's any truth to that is it is the uh, pressure actually, the pressure to make these moves coming from from elsewhere like if if so for example if if somebody if, if putin got assassinated it's been in the news ukraine has been launching drone strikes but then i just saw a headline yesterday i think it was that that kiev didn't uh they they accepted no responsibility for the last drone strike that happened, which is a little unnerving. Mm. But nevertheless, if Putin did get assassinated, if Ukraine mm -hmm. or someone was successful, would the war be over? In your opinion, Fuck no. No, the war is not going to be over, bro. Um, because um, the war is, you know, the war is Putin's baby. But you you have to look at it this way. Um, if the media says that Putin is getting pressure from people around him to further the war effort, that is what he wants your opinion to be. He wants your opinion to be in Russia that they're not doing enough and they should just go straight to full mobilization and to get everyone into Ukraine straight away. That's what they're, that's what they're doing. They have an amazing propaganda situation in, in Russia with their state media. And they will purposely put people on state media that question. They never question, they never say the war shouldn't happen, but they quite often will question uh, 
uh, like how how uh, dedicated they are, and quite often they'll get people that say Putin isn't doing enough. He should rally everyone in 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 Russia and all the tanks and all the planes and throw and all the nukes and throw them all at uh, Ukraine. Well, and I that's think the kind America of thing would doing. America would really like that to happen too, because there's even though the the media narrative is sort of split, and I fully believe that the propaganda machine has a lot to do with that. Whether the the propagandists themselves are aware or not. But from the government perspective, I mean, Biden said we want regime change in Russia. Yeah, for sure. Uh, So they would they would love they would love Russia to to dump all of their resources into Ukraine to weaken them to any other sort of, you know, Weaken them to a point when when NATO and its allies finally say, OK, that's enough of that. Like, like, do, do you feel I, I've, I've had this suspicion? <coughs> Sorry, I'm dehydrated. Um, I've had this suspicion that this this war that right now seems to just I mean, you have to be pretty ignorant to believe that this war is just between Russia and Ukraine at this point. But mm-hmm. that this has kind of been a a sizing up of of the sort of global adversaries like America is happy to dump money and munitions into Ukraine because they're, you know, sort of gathering Intel like, Oh, how is Russia going to respond to this? And Russia is happy to allow America and Western, you know, Ukraine's Western allies to send their technology over there because they then then they get to do the same thing gather intel on oh okay what what kind of things are are going on over there and now the the biggest news that i've seen although it's i mean i think if if i go to fox news right now there's probably nothing about it is the uh president uh zaluzny maybe i'm getting that wrong try to say zelensky uh, I was talking about the Russian president. Oh, um, Putin. Oh, it wasn't Putin though. I'm. I'm. I hold on. I have it here. Oh, I guess they have a different. Yeah, they Lukashenko. Have a Lukashenko. Be- oh, oh, that's that's, that's, that's the, the president of Belarus. Belarus. Yes. Sorry, my mistake. Yes. He yes. says uh, nuclear weapons to anybody that wants to join the union, or ba- basically that that the allies of that of, of Russia's war effort. Do you think that's just posturing? Do you think that's a, a you know, a gimmick publicity? Absolutely. Stunt? Absolutely. It is. <coughs> Absolutely. It is. They're not going to give anyone nuclear weapons. Like, because why would you give someone that could possibly be your enemy in the future? Nuclear weapons. I mean, it's completely outrageous uh, that anyone believes that Russia or Belarus oh, well, is going uh, to... <laughs> America does it all the time. America loves to give weapons to factions that it will inevitably fight 10 years later. <laughs> yeah, for sure. But, you know, it's, it's one thing to give a bunch of people some AK-47s and, and, right, and, right. and stingers. 
100%. But it's another thing to give them nuclear weapons that are that, that are capable of doing extreme damage, you know, leveling a city, you know, and and be and then being controlled by actors of this is this is like this is a tactic of of basically them saying, if you don't stop fighting against us, we will give nukes to the Taliban. And God knows what they'll do with that. That's what they're saying. That they're not actually going to give these nukes to anyone. They're just basically using these nukes as like a blackmailing tool uh, to get people to, you know, oh my God, we should stop fighting because they, they, they're crazy. Those people in Belarus and Russia, they're crazy. They're just going to give nukes to everyone, bro. We got to nuke them first. Like Come on, let's nuke them that's, first. That's it, bro. It's, it's an escalation. You've got to think. They want to escalate this conflict and the, the, the political philosophers in, in, in Russia and the Russian state media want public opinion to escalate this conflict because although they need people on the couch being politically agnostic, if they're going to win this war, they need the public on their side and they need more men. You know, they're, they're, they are, even though they have more than Ukraine, you know, they are losing people, they're losing bodies. Um, and so they need they need that public opinion to be with them in this, and so they need to slowly but surely escalate the the the, the conflict to a point where they can fully commit everything they they have. And you know, just to go back to you know what I was doing in the IT army of Ukraine, you know, this is something that's like incredibly difficult to do now. But in the early days of the war, we were basically taking down banks, uh, local government. We were taking down everything. I mean. People could not take money out of their own accounts. We were trying to wake up these these people, these populate this population that was sleeping. You know, they had no idea what was going on, and and just going, look, you have done this, therefore you don't get to use your bank anymore. So that's the kind of thing that we were we were doing through various means that I I won't get into, which is incredible. Um, it's it's really yeah. incredible. <clears throat> Was there, was there propaganda? I mean, was it known? Was it, was it readily known that this was the IT army of Ukraine or, or did Putin try to propagandize the people into, oh, this was just a, a whoopsie. Sorry. Somebody forgot to, to plug it in. They got to, you know, turn it off and then turn it back on again and everything should be fixed. Yeah. Yeah. So Russia did not, um, but they, they did towards the end of our campaigning because it became politically acceptable to do so. But in the early days when they were trying to say that nothing was going on with the public, you know, if they were to suddenly come out and go, Ukraine is DDoSing some random people across the world and in Ukraine are, are, are completely you know, ruining all of our major public and private businesses. I mean, that is incredibly damaging to Putin's image. So in the beginning of the war, you know, it was more like stuff's just under maintenance or stuff isn't working right now, but we're working to get it back. Just kind of run of the mill stuff that people would believe, you know, but it became, at some point it became so constant and so often and so... so sort of publicly visible that it was impossible to keep this facade up that things were just breaking and it was always like something really important was like getting completely smashed to pieces uh you know like for example uh even putin's speech like we took down putin's speech and he had to delay it by like a whole hour because we were completely annihilating uh the live stream yeah you've got some you've got some nice headlines here 
Ukraine's IT army has conducted 8,000 cyber attacks against Russia or Russian targets. I I should click it, but you know, it does. Yeah. Against, against Russia. And then, uh, Ukraine's IT army stops 1300 cyber attacks in eight months of war. Has it cooled off or is it still, are you more in a defensive position because Russia's, you know, hardened itself? Yeah, so at the at the moment, you know, their their security in the beginning was very poor, and so it was very easy to to make to, to, for for certain attack vectors to to happen. Um, and I won't go into their specific yeah, sure. attack vectors because uh, they <laughs> I think they're very much private, but privileged information um, for sure. That's that's exactly it. Yeah, I don't want to you know because they might use them in the future, but. Um, in the beginning, their security was was rubbish. So you know the you could just hit their hit their sites with very very simple attacks, and they would go down instantaneously. You know, like for for example, the official website of the SFB uh, or the F- FSB, yeah, the uh, sort of like the secret service of Russia. I mean, we we just annihilated that in a day because uh, it was just super easy. And then they started they started to get smart about it. And started to put some protections in front of their sites and various stuff. And that took them a long time because a lot of their sort of younger, politically active sort of people that, that were knew what was going on, that were all the IT people, were actually leaving the country. So they were having this huge brain drain issue where like thousands of young men that knew how to like code and stuff are actually leaving the country. So they were having a lot of issues trying to find people that were smart enough to fix some of these issues with their sites. And we were basically doing all their like security pen testing for them because anytime they would like make a mistake, we would pick up on it straight away and just completely annihilate their, their site. So yeah, I mean that nowadays because their because their security is so much better they have to choose their targets extremely well and investigate them a lot longer before they do anything because if they if you start to attack a website from and I'll go into specifically how we were able to do it while maintaining anonymity and it was super cool and I love talking about this basically what we did is because one of the problems with it is if you start attacking them from a certain IP address they just block it it's super easy so what you have to do is you have to attack from a place which is so impossible to block that they would have to significantly neuter their own public uh, infrastructure in order to stop it. And of course, they're not going to do that because if they did that, then that wouldn't line up with Putin's own propaganda where nothing's going on and it's all good and, and the cats I'm really the strong. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So what we would do is we would buy up uh, Russian uh, phones. We would buy up Android phones inside Russia. And then use the mobile network in Russia to attack itself. So the only way that uh, they could stop it is if they turned off like the 3G, 4G network in Russia, which they're not going to do. So it was really Really? clever the way we were, yeah, we were buying up all these phones and stuff and just using the phones as proxies. So we could, so they couldn't see who we were and all they could see was just a shitload of phones, like smashing everything. So yeah, it was, uh, it was uh, yeah, a really interesting way that we managed to to code that up. It was it was quite it was quite interesting. And then we were just we were distributing the software to like join 
you know, to add people's hardware to just everyone. It's like everyone, like loads of people across the world were downloading like this little app and turning it on. And it was just like, you know, just smashing everyone. I think one of those ones was called Disbalancer. The people were called Disbalancer Liberator. And they were like a cybersecurity company in, in Ukraine that got really mad about the situation, decided to just make like a do-it-yourself DDoS tool that you could download and just start smashing Russian websites. So... So yeah, really interesting. Did you experience any retaliation or was it pretty much just, you know, nah. stinging and, you know, uh, floating like a butterfly and stinging like a bee? Yeah, it was, it was one of those things where it was so distributed that it really wouldn't have been worth their time um, to manually try and, and, and retaliate. There's not really much you can do uh, against that other than create defenses that stop the attacks rather than like simultaneously attacking back you know when russia when russia attacks back cyber wise they're going to spend their time you know attacking ukraine's uh infrastructure specifically like their internet their power stations their stuff like that their media or hacking into the uk's ministry of defense for example or america's FBI or CIA or whatever, that's going to be where they, they're going to try and spend their time. And I think some papers got released earlier this year, maybe, that, that, that showed you know, the level of access they had into some of that stuff already. So they could see all kinds of weird and wonderful stuff. But it was really interesting, the whole process of picking targets, because we had to pick targets really, really, because uh, we only had a limited, we had a limited amount of resources that we could throw at any such target. So um, we had to get really clever at picking what we were going to take down and why. There was a bit of governance about why we were going to take it down because um, if we took down something that was just unimportant, then it's just a waste of our time. So we had to submit certain websites to people and liaise with the actually the Ukrainian army um, about whether to do this or, or to not to do it. And uh, for, for the most part, it was really successful. We did a lot of damage to Russia's infrastructure. We cost them a lot of money. Um, and it was basically for free. It's the best kind of army. You basically yeah. uh, attack them for free uh, as opposed to, you know, using weapons, which cost a bunch of money, apparently. So so where do you think, I mean, it's, it's I'm, I'm getting the, the impression that things have kind of cooled down now. I mean, of course, you can't tell me what the next big target is, but mm. they've uh, erected defenses to a point where you're, you're just sort of uh, keeping the pressure on or uh, what? Yeah, if, can if, you, they, can if you... they make a... Go ahead. If they make a mistake, we'll be there. Um, but it kind of mirrors what's going on with the total war right now, which is the war is pretty stagnant. There's not much ground being made on either side. And it really is a battle of attrition. It's not like... Because Zelensky... Their propaganda is they need to maintain a, a level of the war is going well enough that w that there's a chance of us winning. At the same time, it's not going too well. We we still need your free support. That's the level of propaganda that Zelensky's at. He has to toe the line between, you know, making sure they uh, post their successes and also making it look like a desperate situation that they need our help. And then Russia is on the other side saying. Uh, pretty much the same thing where we're totally winning and we're claiming victories here, but it's also might not, it's not going as well as it could be. And we should commit more, more uh, offenses, uh, offensive um, items to, to the war. So that's the level of 
you know, you've got you to toe that up and every move has its counter move and its motives behind it. And, you know, in the media with the Ukraine war, man, it, it's super tough to, fi- to find real hard evidence on stuff. It's, it's kind of, you know, from a layman's perspective, you know, because I know people that are there and what's actually going on. Uh, it's, it's so difficult to believe the media because they're, they're going to have a political bias towards something. So they're going to take what Zelensky says on, on face value. And I 100% think Zelensky's a, a great guy, uh, but you have to accept the fact that Zelensky is going to do or say anything in order to smash Russia as hard as possible. And if that means that he's going to claim some successes, but also make it look like they're in desperate situations so that Biden gives them a shitload of uh, planes or rockets, then that is exactly what he's going to do. We should definitely get into Zelensky next next time because I want you mm-hmm. to uh, I want you to dispel some of the the falsities and the propaganda that's getting thrown around in American media ab- about Zelensky and, and some of the things that he's done that are sort of you know <clears throat> painted in this in this light of you know American liberty. It's they're they're pretty detestable but just as a final talking point before we wrap sure where what what do you do you have any predictions what what do you think what do you think is going to happen with with the war Does, it it almost i mean based on what you've told me it sounds like we're looking at sort of uh you know Russia testing the waters of the American imperialist model where it's just sort of endless war and as long as we're not losing we're winning and we can keep fighting you know into infinity yeah i i i definitely agree with the fact that i think Russia is hoping and also you know putting uh, you know betting a lot on the fact that Hopefully we can just survive long enough that the West will stop caring about this because I'll make, you know, I will admit, you know, hand on heart without the West support, you know, Ukraine, Ukraine will definitely fail. Um, and so I think Russia is, is hoping for that. But I don't think because the while the public may get bored of the situation, you know, uh, countries like uh, America and the Ukraine love a proxy war. And so, because they make so much money out of it. Yeah, exactly. You got to, you got to think right. You got to think. Oh, they're giving Ukraine a trillion dollars. Who do you think makes the weapons? It's America. Right. They're paying. They're basically paying themselves. You know, for whatever they're buying, it's literally going to pay American people to make the weapons that then send them to Ukraine. So, you know, it's it's gonna. They love a proxy war. They make a bunch of money out of it. And if Ukraine wins then they get access to all that Ukrainian gas and oil. So, but, you know, if, if, if we just cut all that out for a bit and just talk about what I think is going to happen with the war going forward, I would have to say at the current time with my current knowledge, all I'm going to say is that the war is here to stay. There's not going to be a winner or loser anytime soon. It's the new Afghanistan, if I'm totally honest. It's just a war that's going to be here for a, incredibly long time unless putin and his and his his local circle is eradicated because it's not just putin it's people like sergey shogu and all those other people even lukashenko as well 
you know, all these people are, are very close to Putin and, and believe in what Putin's going to do. And unless them are all simultaneously eradicated at once for some other reason, they're not really going to give up. If the public suddenly get wind that they don't want to do it anymore and they want to do some crazy civil movement, I, I can't see that happening. People don't realize how disconnected Russian people are from their political situation. They just don't, they don't give a shit. They really don't, they don't care. Uh, there's a great um, YouTube channel. I'll, I'll, I'll tell you it afterward because it will match up with the next thing we talk about with Zelensky as well. Um, but if I had to, yeah, if I had to just say in one sentence that, that the Ukraine war is, is here for a long time and anyone that says a definitive answer on who's going to win is lying to you. There is no evidence to support who's going to win right now because there's so many layers to what's going on. Uh, so yeah, I, I, I'm just going to put it out there, man. It's just, it's just, it's just going to be here. The Ukraine war is just going to be here for forever. Well, there's definitely a lot more to say on the, the topic. I'm, uh, I'm really excited to, uh, celebrate you as my co-host for well as long as we decide we want to keep doing this <clears throat> so thank you everybody yeah. everyone for listening please uh smash that like button i don't know why we'll, we'll have to get into that on another the the uh, the concept of smashing the like button why don't don't smash it <laughs> click it click it or tap it you know but anyway <laughs> follow on uh, on all of your uh, your favorite podcast platforms and uh, follow me on rumble if you like even though there's not uh, there's nothing in the way of video we're just we're we're all audio at this time and um 404 drop your drop your plugs where do you where would you like them where would you like them to go i would like you to go no other place but to the next episode of this podcast thank you so much for joining us i'm really uh i'm absolutely gaffed to be the co-host here on the Earthbox podcast and I'm looking forward to doing more episodes and uh, delving deeper into all kinds of weird and wonderful content and so the next thing you should do after subscribe to the podcast is go to the next episode well said we'll be back